Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. As you make your way to John 5, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that we're going to move around quite a bit in the Word of God. Stick with me the best you can as we work our way through this beautiful section of Scripture. John 5, and we'll start with verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In a cemetery in Hanover, Germany, there is a grave that is like no other, because on top of this grave there was placed huge slabs of granite and marble. They were cemented together and fastened together with heavy steel fasteners. Now this grave belongs to a woman who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. But yet, she directed in her will that her grave be made so secure that just in case, just in case there was a resurrection, it could not reach her. On the grave marker, these are the words that were inscribed. This burial place must never be opened. But something happened. Over time, a seed covered over by the stones, it began to grow. Slowly it pushed its way through the soil and out from beneath the stones as it continued to grow, as it got bigger and bigger, the great slabs were gradually shifted so that the steel fasteners holding these slabs together, they were pulled apart. A tiny seed had become a tree that had pushed aside the stones. Those massive pieces of granite could not withstand the life force within that small seed. The life contained in that little seed is but a faint reflection of the tremendous power of God the Son, who testifies that someday he will call to life the bodies of all who are in the grave. There will be no exceptions. He'll bring back every person, even those drowned at sea, cremated or destroyed in some other way. The recreation of human bodies is no problem for the one who made something out of nothing when he spoke the universe into existence. A lack of belief cannot stop the resurrection, but saving faith in the risen Christ opens the door to the blessings that his resurrection guarantees. A glorious new spiritual body and a home in the coming kingdom of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of our own. In our new bodies, we'll be reunited with saved loved ones to live with Jesus throughout all eternity. And so the question before us is about your resurrection. Will it be one of joy or will it be one of eternal judgment? We begin with verses 
25 and 26. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, even before his resurrection, the Lord Jesus claimed to have power to raise the dead. So far in the narrative of John, Jesus had already changed the water into wine. He had healed a nobleman's son. He had just healed the man whose hopeless case had been on display for 38 years. But we have no record that up until this point, Jesus had raised the dead. To claim this power, the power to raise the dead had to grab the attention of the Jews. The gospel accounts teach that within the coming months, Jesus would raise the physical bodies of the dead. John shows us this in chapter 11, when Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. But here in John 5, I believe the Lord had much, much more in mind than just a resurrection of someone who was dead who would go on to die again. And here again, we have this tension between the future events foretold in the Bible and the things that were already true during the earthly ministry of Christ. So we hit at this before when we were in chapter 4. Follow the line of thinking here in verse 25. We have this statement, the hour is coming and now is. The hour is coming and now is. This is now, this is also in the future. It was a figure of speech that referred to a specific time that would come. But I do not believe that Christ was just speaking of the coming literal resurrection of the dead from their graves at the sound of his voice. Go back to verse 24. Set up your understanding of the context with verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Verse 24 and verse 25 are talking about eternal life, and the coming hour already is. The resurrection life for the physically dead in the end time is already being manifest as life for the spiritually dead. It is the voice of God the Son. It is the very words of God the Son that call forth the dead. Those who hear that voice, those who receive the words of the Messiah, will live. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. We talked about this in our last study in John. The hearing involved in John 5 is not just hearing, but also receiving. Those who hear the word of Christ, those who receive the word of Christ, have passed from death to life. This has already taken place. We've been made spiritually alive in Christ. And now we just await our new glorified bodies. What about this statement of Christ in verse 25, that the hour is coming? The Lord is telling us that his sacrifice on the cross would form the true basis of faith. Remember, it was back in chapter 4, verse 23, where Jesus testified, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. John 4 taught that the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross would form the basis of true and genuine worship, and now the teaching is that the cross would form the true basis for faith. But in both places, Christ added these words, and now is. 
to make it known so there would be no argument that the opportunity to come to saving faith, the opportunity to worship existed even before his death on the cross because he was with them. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. Jesus was introducing this dispensation of the grace of God. And verse 26, it takes us back again to our last study. Notice the very first word of verse 26. It is a simple word for. This word lets us know that this verse, verse 26, explains to us how it is that the Son can exercise divine judgment, how it is that the Son can generate resurrection life by his word. And the reason is because just like the Father, the Son has life in himself. The tense of the verb carries us back beyond the beginning of time and notices teaching God is self-existent. He is always the living God. For men, our life comes from God, meaning that he can take away life just as easily as he gave it. But to the Son and only to the Son, God the Father has granted the right to have life in himself. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, begotten, not created. Even the words used, Father and Son, imply the teaching of coexistence. Neither the Father nor the Son existed without the other. The Father is not any more God than the Son, and the Son is not any less God than the Father. So be careful with this statement that the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself. This does not mean that God the Father created God the Son. Neither the Father nor the Son was created. This does not mean that the Son only received the authority to have life in himself after the incarnation, after the Son became a man. What did John chapter 1 verse 4 teach us? Speaking of the Son, in him was life. This is a part of who he is. Life is in the Son. This is an eternal truth about God the Son. Meaning there was not a time when the Son did not have life within himself. This is a part of the relationship between the Father and the Son, a relationship that existed in the beginning. This is who the Son has always been from eternity past. And this is what grounds his authority and power to call the dead to life by his powerful word. The Father appointed the Son to give eternal life to those who believe. And here's the meaning by saying that the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself. This is a way of teaching us that even though God the Son had now come in the flesh, he still possessed the eternal life that he had throughout eternity. In this, he was one with the Father. Verse 27. Notice how this connects to the text before and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. This goes back to the judgment of Christ. This authority comes to Christ because, notice the phrase, he is the Son of Man. This was a title that Christ used of himself often. Back in verse 25, he referred to himself as the Son of God, a claim that he is God. Now we read the claim to be the Son of Man. Make sure your understanding of Christ is lined up with the Word of God. Jesus is not part God and part man. He is both fully God, and fully man. Jesus is qualified to be the judge of men because on the one hand, he himself is a man. He is one of us. He has shared the experiences of men, the joys, the sorrows, the trials and temptations, the ups and downs from the cradle to the grave. The Lord knows 
what it is like to be a boy, to be raised in a poor family, to work at a carpenter's bench. He knows what it is like to be tired, to be hungry, thirsty, and in pain. He knows what it's like to have friends and to have enemies. He has experienced betrayal and the hatred of men. He knows these things firsthand. But that is not enough. He must be more than a man. He must be sinless. He must be holy. Remember what we have said before, that in the Old Testament, God is the judge. As God the Son and as the Son of Man, he is the righteous judge of men. Son of Man, it's a messianic title. Daniel 7 speaks directly to this. Listen to the words of Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus is the Son of Man who receives dominion and glory from the Ancient of Days. The clear assumption is that of deity, but at the same time, the Son of Man, he belongs to humanity, and he has walked where humans walk. It is the truth that Jesus is both God and man that makes him and him alone uniquely qualified to be the judge of all men. God the Son, rejected by the Jews. He stands alone as the righteous judge. And if men refuse to accept the gospel message, if they turn away from the word of the Son of God and reject his grace, then God the Father has anointed the Son of Man to be the judge of those who refuse him. On that last day, God will sit upon the great white throne and call sinners before him to answer for the guilt of rejecting the salvation that he has provided. But the person of the Godhead who will appear on that throne will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to the book of Job, turning to chapter 9 of Job. Now, this is one of those times that we're just going to scratch the surface. But I wanted to point out something that Job said so, so long ago. In Job chapter 9, head down to verse 32, speaking of God. And starting in verse 32, we read, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job was looking for a mediator between him and God, and it is a blessing to know that the mediator that could meet his need and our need is the Lord Jesus Christ. But skip ahead to chapter 23 of Job. Job longed for something else. Job 23, this time starting with verse 8. Job 23, verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Wherever Job looked, he could not see God. Job longed for a man who could represent God to him, and that man is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is just as much a man as he is God. Remember what Paul told Timothy, for God is one, and there is one mediator of God and of men, the man Christ Jesus. 
If men refuse Christ now, if they turn away from him now, someday they will have to face him. But at that time, it will be too late to be saved. The very one who would have given them life, he will then be their judge. Take a look at verses 28 and 29, back in the Gospel of John, two extremely powerful verses. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Verse 28 begins with the phrase, do not marvel at this. This goes back to the teaching that we just looked at, that the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they who hear shall live. Don't marvel that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man. The Jews didn't believe he was the Messiah, so they didn't think he would have any part in raising the dead. Go back to verse 25 for just a second. Remember how it started out. The hour is coming and now is. But how does verse 28 begin? The hour is coming. There's no reference in verse 28 to the and now is, meaning this is all the future. The teaching back in verse 25 is that the voice of the Son is powerful enough to impart spiritual life right now. And in verse 28, the teaching is, the voice of the Son is powerful enough to call forth the dead in the future. And the wording of verse 29 can throw you off. It almost, almost sounds like works-based salvation. But understand with me that in the Gospel of John, those who have done good are those who have come to the light of Christ. Because the only good thing that you can do is to believe on Christ. This section of text is all about eternal life. Those who have done evil are those who reject the Savior. Those who have done good, this is the person with faith in the Savior. In chapter 6, Jesus would go on to say, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And then just a bit further in the text, the Lord testified, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at that last day. If you take the context of the entire gospel record of John, those who have done good are those who have life in Christ right now. Believers rising up to the resurrection of life, men and women with faith in the Messiah. But on the other side of things, notice how John puts it in verse 29, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, the resurrection of life for believers, and now the resurrection of condemnation. John 3 explains this for us. Flip back, if you would, to John 3, and notice the teaching that starts in verse 19. John 3, verse 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Now those who practiced evil in John 5, those who will be at the resurrection of condemnation are those who have rejected the light of Christ. And so back in John 5, here's the teaching. Believers in Christ already experience right now, eternal life in Christ. But at the resurrection of life, it will be the ratification, the confirmation of the life and freedom from condemnation that we now already enjoy. 
A lot of people today think of just one judgment, one resurrection from the dead for all mankind. But notice here in John that there is a resurrection of life and a resurrection of condemnation. And yet even for believers, the resurrection does not come all at once. The resurrection of life, it takes place in three stages. And the first part is the first fruits. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. Chapter 15 is this great, great chapter where the Apostle Paul teaches on the resurrection of Christ and of the saints. 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one, in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Remember, this is only about the resurrection unto life. And a couple of points I want you to take out of this passage. First, in verse 20, the resurrection of Christ is the firstfruits of those who sleep. Believers in Christ will rise from the dead just as Christ himself did. Now, the second point I want you to walk away with is down in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruit, and afterward they who are Christ at his coming. Christ is the guarantee of our resurrection to come. He was the first. The resurrection of believers is inevitable. Keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 15, and now turn, if you would, to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 is a difficult text, but we'll glean what we can from it. Matthew 27, and we'll start with verse 50. Now, this text is recording what happened when Christ died. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And just on a side note, the text is telling us that at his death, the graves were opened. The graves were opened at his death. That becomes important. But what happened next took place after his resurrection. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. First, notice that this does not teach that every Old Testament saint was resurrected at this point. Verse 52 teaches, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. It's my best understanding that this passage is part of the first fruits of the resurrection unto life and that the resurrection of these saints after Jesus was raised is a token of the coming harvest when all the saints will be raised. Remember in Leviticus 23, we have the feast of the first fruits of the harvest. And what they would do is that as a token of the coming greater harvest, the people would bring a handful of grain to the priest, trusting God that the greater harvest would come. Here in Matthew 27, the resurrection of these Old Testament saints after the Savior was raised is a token of the coming harvest. When all believers in Christ will be resurrected unto life. Now listen closely as you make your way back to 1 Corinthians 15, 
Let's talk about the timing of this. Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the first month. Jesus died on the day that the Jewish men killed their Passover lamb. The Jews then offered a sacrifice of first fruits the day after the Sabbath, following the Passover. This would have been Sunday. This was the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And so look again at verse 20 here in 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become, notice, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul used the first fruits as a metaphor to show that Christ came first. I think what we have in Matthew 27 is that some of the Old Testament saints were a part of this as a token of the coming harvest. But don't miss the teaching that is here to encourage us, to let us know that just as the first fruits of the harvest showed a greater harvest was coming, so it is that the greater harvest, the resurrection unto life, is guaranteed. It's inevitable. God has guaranteed it. And this is what Paul goes on to teach still in 1 Corinthians 15. This time, skip down to verse 51. Here comes the greater harvest, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? In our last study of John, we read from 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Remember the teaching. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So follow the thinking. In the resurrection of life, we have the first fruits, we have the harvest of believers, and then we have what I like to call the gleanings. And here's why. When they would harvest the fields, the gleaning would be the picking up of what was left behind, the gathering of the grain left behind because the Mosaic law allowed the poor to glean the grain that was left behind during the harvest. Ruth and Boaz illustrates this perfectly, but the prophets use this concept metaphorically to refer to the remnant of Israel when they face judgment. We see this in Isaiah 17, Micah 7, and Jeremiah 6. In Isaiah 17, Isaiah compared the few grapes or olives left for the gleaners to the remnant of Israel that God would leave behind when he judged them. Make your way over to Isaiah 27. Now the scene in Isaiah 27, it looks forward to the time when the Lord will bring his people back into their land. At the end of the tribulation, The Lord will establish his kingdom and the Messiah will reign from Jerusalem. Read the text with me. Isaiah 27 verses 12 and 13. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel, 
so it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Now back up to verse 12 again with me. Notice the wording to Israel, and you will be gathered one by one. You will be gathered one by one, or better, it could be translated, you will be gleaned one by one. There will be a resurrection of people who will come to know Christ after the rapture of the church in the tribulation. And Revelation 20 verse 4 teaches that the redeemed in Christ martyred for the faith during the tribulation will be raised from the dead when the Lord returns in glory at his second coming. Verse 4 of Revelation 20 records, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Daniel 12, 2 teaches us that when the Lord returns in glory at the second coming, that this is when the Old Testament saints will be resurrected unto life. But for the condemned, for those who reject the salvation of Christ, their judgment will not take place, according to Revelation 20, verse 12, until the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Listen to Revelation 20. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. This will be a desperate scene. Those raised at this time will be the unredeemed of all the ages. There will be no hope for these people. Their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who reject the saving grace of Christ, they will rise to be condemned. This will be the confirmation of their condemnation. Because remember what chapter 3 of John already taught us. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God the Son knows who belongs to him and who stands condemned for rejecting him. The unredeemed need to understand that there will be a resurrection and resurrection will be followed by judgment. Jesus was driving at this very point back in John 5 because the Jews need to know that their opposition to Jesus had eternal consequences. The Son of Man is the judge of all men. Back now in John 5, take a look at our final verse, verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Think of how great this verse is. We can rest assured that the judgment of Christ will be just. And the reason given is because his judgment is completely dependent on the will of his Father. It is his submission to the Father. It is his commitment not to please himself, but to the one who sent him. That guarantees that all he says and does will be in complete agreement with the Father, even on 
that last day. Understand that justice depends upon the laws behind a judgment. Justice depends on the integrity of the judge administering that law. The laws of men change over time. What may have been a crime 50 years ago, it may not be a crime today. Or crime in this country may not be a crime in other nations. But before God, men will face the absolute and unchanging standard of deity. The standard of the Son is the standard of the Father. And there is a remarkable change in the text taking place in our final verse. Jesus moved to the first person singular. I can do nothing of my own self as I hear. I judge my judgment. I do not seek my own will. The Jews would have noticed because the Lord Jesus was proclaiming that he had accepted the mission of the Father to be the judge of men. The question before the Jews, was this man Jesus everything that he claimed to be? Dr. Gary Habermas is a professor of theology. His focus is on defending the truth of the resurrection of Christ. And he spent a lot of time talking about this. He's written 35 different books, written articles, and from time to time, he debates atheists about the resurrection of Christ. At one time, back in 1985, he debated a well-known atheist on whether or not the resurrection of Jesus was a literal, historical, and physical event that took place. This was before a crowd of 3,000 people. The debate was judged by five secular philosophers, and four out of five voted that Gary had won with the other judge left undecided. But something happened to Gary in 1995 that made him take a deeper look at the resurrection of Christ. He talked about it one time. But this time he wasn't just quoting from Scripture. This time he wasn't debating, and he wasn't building a case to prove the resurrection of Christ. Because on this occasion, he spoke about the time in 1995, when his wife, Debbie, at just the age of 43, slowly died from stomach cancer. Listen to what Gary said, and I quote, I sat on our porch. My wife was upstairs dying. Except for a few weeks, she was home through it all. It was an awful time. This was the worst thing that could possibly happen. But do you know what was amazing? My students would call me, not just one, but several of them, and they would say, at a time like this, aren't you glad about the resurrection? As sober as those circumstances were, I had to smile for two reasons. First, my students were trying to cheer me up with my own teaching, and second, because it worked. As I would sit there, I'd picture Job, who went through all that terrible stuff and asked questions of God, but then God turned the tables and asked him, a few questions. I knew if God were to come to me, I'd ask only one question. Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed? And I think God would respond by asking gently, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? And if I responded, of course he was raised from the dead, but I want to know about Debbie. I think he'd keep coming back to the same question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? until I got his point. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, then there's an answer to Debbie's death in 1995. And do you know what? It worked for me while I was sitting on the porch, and it still works today. It was a horribly emotional time for me 
but I couldn't get around the fact that the resurrection is the answer for suffering. I still worried. I still wondered what I'd do raising four kids alone, but there wasn't a time when that truth didn't comfort me. Losing my wife was the most painful experience I've ever had to face. But if the resurrection could get me through that, it can get me through anything. It was good for 30 AD. It's good for 1995. It's good for 1998. And it's good beyond that. And then listen to what Gary said at the end. That's not some sermon. I believe that with all my heart. If there's a resurrection, there's a heaven. If Jesus was raised, Debbie is alive. And someday, I'll see them both. There will be a resurrection unto life, and there will be a judgment for believers. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. At the resurrection unto life, the question of your salvation will not come up. Because if you appear at the resurrection of life, your salvation will have long been settled by your faith in Christ. Because at the judgment seat of Christ, it is the works of the believer that will be examined to determine your reward or loss of reward in the coming kingdom of God. I often tell people that it will be a lot like a high school graduation. Some will have done better than others, and that will determine your position in the kingdom of God. But the overall feeling will be that of joy. Celebrate the resurrection, knowing that the resurrection of Christ is the promise of a greater harvest yet to come. Jesus told Martha in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Hold on to the promise and know the joy of redemption. Know the peace that comes from trusting in the Son of God, believing in his power to give life and to raise the dead certain of our future with the final judge of all men. Before we close out, I want to thank you for listening. If you want to keep current with our studies, there's a lot of ways to make sure you never miss another episode. You can subscribe by email, get our free app for your tablet or your phone. You can also use the Apple Podcast app or one of the Android apps and have all the episodes delivered right to your mobile device. You can find all of the links on our webpage, returntotheword.com. It's underneath the podcast tab. And if you're feeling social, help us out by sharing this episode on Twitter or Facebook because by telling others, you can help us tell the world of God's amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. 
Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 